Chapter fifty two of This Country of Ours. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This Country of Ours by H. E. Marshall. Chapter fifty two. Paul Revere's Ride The Unsheathing of the Sword. All the colonies now felt that they must unite in truth, and that they must have some centre to which all could appeal. So a congress of all the colonies was called at Philadelphia. This is called the First Continental Congress, and to it all the colonies except Georgia sent delegates. This congress drew up a declaration of rights. They also sent an address to the king, in which they declared that they had no wish to separate from Britain. But the king called the congress an unlawful and seditious gathering, and would not listen to anything it had to say. Still, far-seeing statesmen with Pitt at their head struggled to bring about a reconciliation. "'I contend not for indulgence, but for justice to America,' he said. "'The Americans are a brave, generous, and united people, with arms in their hands, and courage in their hearts. It is not repealing this act of Parliament, it is not repealing a piece of parchment, that can restore America to our bosom.' You must repeal her fears and her resentments, and you may then hope for her love and gratitude. But few people listened to Pitt. The bill which he brought into Parliament was rejected with scorn, and the great struggle which was to last for eight years began. Already in America men's minds had begun to turn to war, and on every village green the farmers might be seen drilling every evening. Bands of Minutemen, that is, men who would be ready at a minute's notice, were organized. All sorts of war stores were gathered. Two of the leaders of the people in all these matters were Samuel Adams and John Hancock. These men, Governor Gage, who was also commander of the troops, was ordered to arrest and send to England to be tried as traitors. Gage, having heard that both men were staying at the village of Lexington, decided to arrest them together. For this he carefully laid his plans. Eight hundred men were to leave Boston in secret at dead of night. First they were to go to Lexington, and having arrested the traitors, they were next to march on to Concord to seize the large war stores which were known to be gathered there. All the preparations were made as silently and as secretly as possible, but the colonists were on the alert. They knew that something was afoot, and guessed what it was. On the 18th of April, Gage gave strict orders that no one was to be allowed to leave Boston that night, but no orders could stop determined men. And as the moon was rising, a little boat was rowed across the Charles River, almost under the shadow of the British man-of-war. The boat reached the farther shore, and a man, booted and spurred, as if ready for a long ride, leaped out upon the bank. This man was Paul Revere. At ten o'clock the troops also were silently rowed across the Charles River, and in the darkness set out for Lexington. But not far off on the bank of the same river a man stood waiting beside a saddled horse. Quietly he waited, looking always towards the tower of the old North Church. It was Paul Revere, and he waited for a signal to tell him which way the Redcoats were going. 
Suddenly, about eleven o'clock, two twinkling lights appeared upon the tower, and without a moment's loss Paul Revere leaped into the saddle and dashed away. Swiftly he rode, urging his good horse onward with voice and hand. Near the lonely spot where stood the gallows he passed. Here, under a tree, two horsemen waited, and as Revere came nearer he saw that they were British soldiers. Swiftly they darted at him. One tried to seize his bridle, the other to head him off, but Revere was a fearless rider, and knew the countryside by heart. He swerved suddenly, doubled, and was soon clear of his pursuers. Then on through the darkness he galloped, unhindered, till he reached Medford. Here he stayed but to rouse the captain of the Minutemen, and onward he sped once more. Now at the door of every cottage or farmhouse which he passed he loudly knocked, shouting his news, "'The soldiers are coming!' and thundered off again in the darkness. A little after midnight he reached Lexington, and stopped before the house where Adams and Hancock were sleeping. He found it guarded by Minutemen, and as he excitedly shouted his news they bade him be quiet. "'Don't make such a noise,' said the sergeant. "'You will waken the people in the house.' "'Noise!' cried Revere. "'You will soon have noise enough. The regulars are coming.' Hancock was awake, and hearing Revere's voice he threw up his window, shouting to the guard to let him in. So Revere went into the house and told all he knew. When they heard the news, Hancock wanted to stay and fight, if fighting there was to be, but the others would not hear of it, so as day dawned the two men quietly walked away, and were soon on the road to Philadelphia. Meanwhile the British troops were steadily marching nearer and nearer. At first all was silent. Save the clatter and jingle of their arms and the tramp of their feet, there was no sound. No light was to be seen far or near. Then suddenly a bell rang, a shout was heard, lights twinkled here and there. The night was no longer silent and dark. The country was no longer asleep. The colonel in command of the troops grew anxious. He had expected to take the people completely by surprise, and he had not done so. Somehow the secret had leaked out. The whole countryside was up and awake, and, fearing lest with his small company of soldiers he would not be able to do what he had set out to do, he sent back to Boston for more men. And sure enough his fears were well grounded, for when in the cold grey of early dawn the advance party reached Lexington, they found a little guard of sixty or seventy armed men drawn up to receive them. "'Disperse, ye rebels, disperse!' shouted the commander as he rode towards them. But the men stood motionless and silent. "'Why don't you disperse, you villains?' he cried again. Then, seeing words had no effect, he gave the order to fire. The soldiers obeyed, and eight Minutemen fell dead, and several more were wounded. The Minutemen returned the fire, but just then more British soldiers appeared in sight, and seeing that it was useless to try to resist so great a force, the Americans dispersed. Thus the terrible war, which was almost a civil war, began. The British now marched on to Concord. They had failed to arrest the men they had been sent to arrest at Lexington. So there was all the more reason to hurry on to Concord, and seize the war stores before there was time to spirit them away. 
but when about seven o'clock in the morning the troops arrived at Concord, the stores for the most part had been already safely hidden. A gun or two they found, and a few barrels of flour. The guns were spiked, the barrels staved in, the courthouse set on fire. But meanwhile the Minutemen had been gathering, and now a force four hundred strong appeared on the further side of a bridge known as the North Bridge. The bridge was held by two hundred British, and when they saw the Minutemen approach they began to destroy it. There was a sharp exchange of fire. Then the Minutemen charged across the narrow bridge, sweeping all before them. The British fled back to the village, and the Minutemen, hardly knowing what they had done, retired again across the bridge, and waited. The British leader now decided to return to Boston. He had done nothing which he had set out to do, but he saw that his position was one of great danger. Everywhere he was surrounded with enemies. His men were hungry and worn out, so about twelve o'clock the march back to Boston began. But the return was not easy, for all the way the troops were harassed by the Americans. Every bush, every wall concealed an armed farmer, whose aim was deadly and sure. Man after man fell, and beneath the constant and galling fire coming, it seemed, from everywhere and nowhere, the nerves of the wearied, hungry men gave way. Faster and faster the long red line swept along in ever-growing confusion. There was no thought now of anything but safety, and the march was almost a rout, when at length the reinforcements from Boston appeared. These were a thousand strong, and their leader, Lord Percy, seeing the confusion and distress of the British, formed his men into a hollow square. Into this refuge the fugitives fled, throwing themselves upon the ground in utter exhaustion, with their tongues hanging out of their mouths, like those of dogs, after a chase. Lord Percy had brought cannons with him, so with these he swept the field, and for a time forced the colonists to retire. But they did not disperse, they still hovered near, and as soon as the retreat again began, there began with it the constant galling fire from every tree or bush, before, behind, on either side. To return the fire was useless, as the enemy were hidden. It was a sort of warfare not unlike that which Braddock had had to meet, a sort of warfare in which the American farmer was skilled, but of which the British soldier knew nothing. So when, at length, as day darkened, the British troops reached Boston, they were utterly spent and weary. And in a huddled, disorganized crowd, they hurried into shelter. End of chapter 52, read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, in June 2010.